everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Rashid focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. This week's episode is dedicated in honor of Rabbi Zev Lewis by his family on occasion of his 87th birthday. Super Saba, together with Super Safta, have set a personal example for living on a strong foundation of Torah, hard work, common sense, and the importance of family. May he merit to continue studying Torah with his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and enjoy nachat from them for many years to come. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Toldot focuses on the life of Yitzchak and opens with Rivka's approaching him to pray on her behalf after having difficulty conceiving a child. The text recounts that Yitzchak marries at 40 and becomes a father at 60. That's 20 years without children. Rivka becomes pregnant with twins, who already in utero are described as coexisting in disharmony. After their birth, Yitzchak meets famine, in whose wake and at God's behest he remains in Israel despite difficulty and remains in Gerar. We read another attempt to present a wife as a sister, but Yitzchak is caught rather quickly in this fib by Avimelech. The parsha continues with Yitzchak being moved to the fringes of Gerar, but sometime later Avimelech initiates a treaty with a successful Yitzchak in order to limit the threat of his dwelling nearby. Today's conversation focuses on the final section of the parsha, the story of Yitzchak's blessing his sons and the competition that ensues to receive the elder blessing, famously taken by Yaakov despite Yitzchak's desire to bequeath it to Esav. To unpack this story, I have invited Rabbi Shmuel Klitzner, author of Wrestling Jacob, Deception, Identity, and Freudian Slips in Genesis. Rabbi Klitzner has taught Bible and Talmud for the past 35 years at Jerusalem's Midrash at Lindenbaum and has been involved in some of the most innovative educational projects in Israel. He is presently the chairman of Or Torah Stone's groundbreaking Susie Bradfield Women's Institute of Halachic Leadership that trains women scholars to be spiritual leaders and arbiters of Jewish law. Rabbi Klitzner, it's an honor to have you here today. It's wonderful to be with you, Yosefa. And if I can give a mazel tov to Zev Lewis, he's a former neighbor of mine. Uh, yeah. And I wish him Admea Vestrim. Amen. His granddaughter is a good friend of mine. So I'm really excited to have you here for this episode. You should know that your book published at this point, how many years ago? 2006. 16 years ago. Yeah. Uh, was one of these books that I read sort of early on my journey to studying Tanakh and going deep into it, that gave me, uh, that was really inspiring to see that you could, on one hand, hold respect and admiration and a deep love for Tanakh and all of our Avoti Nimahot and combine it with really well done literary and at this point also a certain amount of psychological analysis. So I just want to say a belated thank you. Many, many years later, uh, I was moved then and I'm still moved now as I also was rereading to prepare for the episode. I'm so happy that we could still be here speaking about this book. Very gratifying to hear that. Um, And maybe with that introduction about, uh, on the one hand, taking a literary look at the complexity of the story, and the other hand, respect for the uh, avot and imahot, 
I'll mention for those who otherwise might find it dissonant what we're about to do, that there are two approaches that are main approaches in medieval classic parshanut or exegesis. Uh, one is Rashi and the school of Midrashim that say every tzaddik is a tzaddik gamur, it's a complete tzaddik, and every uh, character in Tanakh who's perceived to be less than righteous is totally unrighteous. Uh, and that would extend to Yaakov and Esav and create a very one-dimensional view. There are reasons why Rashi does that, but there is another just as legitimate school of thought typified by Nachmanides, by Ramban, by Abarbanel and others who see the lessons in Tanakh and the lessons particularly in this parasha that we're going to talk about, parasha Toldot, as examples sometimes of what not to do. And they allow themselves to be critical of the avot and the imahot in a very instructive way that often constructs these characters as more than one-dimensional, as people that we can identify with and, and perhaps learn from a little bit more easily. Yeah, and I think that's a constant debate also didactically. What do people learn better from? Do they learn better from figures who they look at as perfected, or do they learn better from figures who are slightly more relatable to them? It's a debate that goes far beyond and echoes far more than what we'll do today, but it stands sort of at the bedrock of what we're doing throughout this whole book of Rashid. And in different episodes, we sort of refer to those those arguments and the levels of those conversations over the centuries. So thanks for reminding us of that again. And today we're definitely going in that second uh, in, in the tradition category. of Ramban and Abarbanel, yes. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. So take us into the story of Yaakov and Yaakov and Esav, wherever, wherever you're going to start with us today. Well, let's start towards the beginning of the parasha, and then we'll focus, if we have enough time, at the end of the parasha, as you said, the extreme dysfunction of the parental, chi- child, and fraternal uh, connectivity appears already in chapter 25, verse 28. It's actually a heartbreaking pasuk uh, with an asymmetry built in. Yitzchak loved Esav because of the venison in his mouth. The pshat uh, orientation would be because Yitzchak enjoys the barbecue that is uh, handed to him by Esav the hunter. And, but Rivka loves Yaakov. And despite the attempts of various medieval parshanim to soften the dysfunction, like Radak, who uses, uh, who would be translated so, as some translators into English do, uh, Yitzchak favored Esav, but Rivka favored Yaakov, hmm. um, in which case, of course, both parents love both children. Um, but if you read it at its plain meaning, one parent one loves one child, and Rivka loves Yaakov unconditionally. Yeah, it's very striking that there's no reason given for her love. I'll, I'll also just add in, I think, the very human piece, which is that every parent is aware of the fact that they identify a little bit more sometimes with with one child or another or some children over others, simply because their personalities jive in a way that's easier. Right. But that's different, obviously. Or sometimes the child is too similar to the parent, and that's why the parent is, is at less, odds with them. less in love. Yes. Is, is at odds with them, 100%. Yeah, yeah, so I'm saying, yeah. as much as this is very difficult to read, we also have to pull back for a moment and say, <clears> it's not that far off, just the word vayahav is very, very striking. Meaning, even if I would say that I have an easier time with one child over the other, I would never say that I love them more yes, than my other child. Yes, There's something very yes, hard about that sentence. Yes. 
Um, and I'm struck by a very interesting psychologically oriented interpretation of the Or HaChayim, Rav Chaim Ibn Attar of the 19th century Moroccan-born Mifaresh, who uh, I'm surprised it took until the late 19th century to come up with this. But the very next verse begins with what appears to be a non sequitur. Um, it doesn't seem to flow. Vayazed Yaakov Nazid, Yaakov was cooking a cooked stew, or uh, what we understand later to be lentil soup, that red, red stuff. And Esav came in from the field and he was famished. He was depleted. Vayazed um, Yaakov Nazid, how does that flow from the previous verse? And uh, uh, what I call criminal translations translations that do what to me is the capital crime of translation, which is to cover up the problem by paving over the bump in the road. Various Jewish translations, including Jewish Publication Society, which is a great, uh, the new JPS, which is a great translation, including Everett Fox uh, and other translations say, once when Jacob was cooking stew, and that's not justified in Vayazed Yaakov Nazid. The, the Bible knows how to say once when. Vayhi yom Vayazed Yaakov Nazid, it should have said. Why do they do once when? Because they want to create a transition from the previous verse, and they're dealing with the non sequitur by providing words that aren't there in the original Hebrew. And uh, the Orha Chaim says, no, Vayazed Yaakov Nazid, Jacob is cooking food, to imitate his brother Esav, who brought food to his father, eliciting father's love. And now Yaakov, the unloved son by father at least, the unloved son, is cooking a stew in the very next verse. And I think it's a compelling uh, interpretation. And it means that Yaakov is once again trying to compete with Esav by being Esav, um, which is a lead-in to the next scene towards the end of the parasha, where it gets scaled up into full-scale masquerade, <laughs> right? Full-scale Yaakov trying to be Esav in order to be blessed. And there's something very paradoxical and very ironic and very uh, pathetic about trying to achieve a blessing by being someone other than whom you really are. You can never really truly be blessed. If you've been blessed by virtue of subterfuge or by virtue of masquerade, um, by virtue of a, taking on an identity which is not your true identity, then your true identity remains unblessed, uh, which takes us to, in fact, chapter 27. You know, I'll just add one thought that's coming up for me here. Obviously, and we've spoken about in other episodes, the general theme throughout Sefer Breshit of sibling rivalry and general rivalry that, that appears in so many places. But what's so striking here is that similar to Rachel, Yaakov has love, but he doesn't have the love from who he wants, right? Similar to Rachel and Leah, they each have something, but it's not what they want, right? One has children and wants love, one has love and wants children. And, and that's such a real dilemma that we feel so often, meaning somebody can have so many things, but if they don't have that one relationship or that one coveted bond that they're looking for, it can really, uh, it can really corrupt or, or just stain everything else that they have, right? You sort of want to look at Yaakov and say, you, you have other strengths going for you, right? You don't need to become a, you don't need to become a cook, or you don't need to become a hunter, but it's that real desire to get that thing that you don't yet possess that, for some reason, is you so strongly desire that pushes you to do something 
that, as you said, seems it, it's sad. It's sad to counterproductive. See it. In counterproductive, the end. sure, and and ends up minimizing who you really are. So to differentiate, uh, to go one step beyond what you've accurately pointed out, is that there are two types of love. There's father's love and there's mother's love. And if I were in a pre-politically correct society, I would not hesitate to say that like Rivka's love, which is, as we commented before, Rivka Ohevet et Yaakov, without a reason, that's unconditional love. That's love for no reason. Whereas the typical father's love is the love that you earn. Uh, every human being needs both, and they need both from both father and mother. But in this story, you've got it constructed in a very particular way. He has the unconditional love, but he doesn't have the conditional love. Yaakov needs, in order to feel entitled, to feel deserving, which is his struggle throughout his lifetime, I'm going to claim, um, throughout Toldot, throughout Vayetze, through into Vayishlach, um, there is a struggle of Yaakov to earn love and to earn a blessing and to achieve that which really fulfills him as someone who is deserving and has earned that which he receives. Um, and I, ironically, uh, he perpetuates this problem and even deepens it by getting things through subterfuge, which means he can't really feel entitled to the blessing or to the love. Um, He'll never you, feel like he actually received it fully in the way that his brother received. Yeah, he does not. And Rivka, now he's sort of in a double bind now, because Rivka tells him, go masquerade as your brother in order to get the blessing from your father. And the phrasing that's used in, in, in Chumash is, Shma b'koli l'asher ani mitzava otach. Okay? Um, listen to me, Shma b'koli as opposed to Shma likoli means to obey. Obey me to that which I command you. So Rivka is, it's, it's the perfect storm. The thing that he wants more than anything else is Father's blessing, which is what it's, is at stake here in chapter 27. Rivka is convinced because she's prophecy-driven, and she received a prophecy that was not shared with Yitzchak. Uh, I think the clearest reading is that she never tells Yitzchak about the blessing, Rav Yavod Sa'ir, the older will serve the younger. And so they're not on the same page. Yitzchak and Rivka, and Rivka becomes uh, this prophecy-driven manipulator who tries to make sure that the right son gets the right blessing. Um, and she catches him in a, what I call a perfect storm, because on the one hand, he needs the thing he needs more than anything else, this thing that's not coming to him, namely father's love, and he therefore becomes over-dependent or extremely dependent on mother's approval. And so here you have a mother charging her son, Lasher ani mitzava otach, with that which I command you to do, um, and in order to get the thing that he needs more than anything else. So we can't really blame Yaakov if we have empathy for him and sympathy for his psychological position. We won't blame him too harshly. And yet, his objection to his mother's plan of masquerading as his brother is a weak uh, one. In chapter 27, verse 12, Ulai yimusheni avi, v'hayiti v'einav kimtatea v'heveti alai kelala v'lo v'racha. 
right? He's saying basically on, on the Kohlberg or Piaget scale of uh, moral development, this is not, I can't do this, mom, because it's wrong or because it's essentially unethical. Because it might not work. But it might not work, <laughs> okay? Um, but here again, there's a wonderful psychological insight that Nechama Leibovitz, my dear beloved teacher, um, quotes in the name of Haktav HaKabalah of Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg, um, which says that the there's a Freudian slip here. There's the equivalent of a Freudian slip. He should have said, Pen Yimusheni Avi, lest my father feel me, touch me, and discover my subterfuge. Instead, he uses the word ulai, which with few exceptions in Tanakh, always means something that you want to happen. So there's the wrong word used because he's uncomfortable with the subterfuge and, and unconsciously or subconsciously wants to be caught. So you see this sort of struggle, but it's an inner struggle. The moral impulse is repressed. And, um, and anything that gets repressed is going to knock on the door from the unconscious to the conscious in various ways. It's going to knock on the door through dreams. It's going to knock on the door through neurotic patterns of repeated behavior that are self-defeating. Mm -hmm. um, like with and the sheep and all these different ways that yes, he comes he off as being somewhat, somewhat trickstery, even though he seems to not have intended it. Yes, he, he always resorts to subterfuge instead of getting what he deserves because of a deep, unseated feeling of lack of entitlement. And this extends through the parshiot. If you allow me to skip ahead to future parshiot, what I found to be a, an extremely compelling interpretation all the way in Parshat Vayishlach is that when he finally can't escape his and repress and avoid uh, all the modus operandi of Yaakov throughout the Yaakov stories with his father and his brother and with afterwards with his father-in-law and brothers-in-law um, that both result in escaping and fleeing for his life. When he finally can't escape these things and can't resort to avoidance because his past is literally and figuratively catching up to him with 400 military accompaniment threatening him, when he's got to face up to his past and he's got to face up to his previously repressed moral instincts, um, there's sort of a split into two identities uh, the upper identity and the lower identity that he tried to connect with a dream of with a ladder going from heaven to earth, um, connecting an otherwise disconnected upper ideal personality and the repressed moral judgment uh, uh, personality. And when he does, there's a mysterious ish, there's a mysterious man in chapter 32 who comes and wrestles with him until the dawn. Who is this Ish? Now, I know that various commentaries identify the Ish with his alter ego being his twin brother, Esav. But I think it's his alter ego. It's that part of himself which needs to unite with that other part of himself that originally split when he disguised himself as Esav. So he's got to integrate his personality. And integrate is a key word because it's related to the word integrity. 
um, if he needs to regain his integrity and his integration in order to truly be blessed, he has to confront himself. And so the Tanakh beautifully describes a Vayivater Yaakov Levado. He's left alone. Vayavek Ish Imo, and yet a man struggles with him. If he's alone, but a man is struggling with him, who's he struggling with? Well, he's alone because he's struggling with self. That's going to be my avenue of interpretation. I also think that it's so powerful because, of course, the world we live in today, we do a really great job of avoiding being alone with ourselves, right? We have all these distractions that are in our hands and in front of our eyes. And for so many people, being left by themselves and staring at themselves is is a very, very, is a frightening endeavor. And I think that this episode shows you that it is frightening and you can you can be left wounded, by the way. Absolutely. You can beautiful, be left wounded, but, exactly. but it has to but it has to happen in order for you to be as you said, integrated with who you actually are. It takes a, a real reckoning. This is a this is a reckoning of Yaakov with with forces that are in him and that he externalized but needs to then bring back inside himself. Well put. And this he does get injured, he walks away limping. Yeah. But it also says Vayakvo Yaakov Shalem Irshem. Some mm. people think Shalem is a city, Salem. And others think he came whole, he became more whole by being injured. Mm. You might call it the injury that enables something like the psychotherapeutic breakthrough or catharsis, which is painful and requires the kind of courage that you talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it leaves you limping, but the limping is more whole. And as long as I've mentioned limping, it's fascinating. I, I learned this from a footnote in a wonderful book about Breshit by Professor Leon Cass. Oh, you know, of, I think we mentioned him almost every episode. Breshit. He's just, oh, yes, I, I had the pleasure of teaching his <laughs> granddaughter, who wrote a book on Ruth together with him um, wow. after his wife passed away. Mm. And he quotes a member of his Parshat Shavua group. I think his name is Yuval Levine. Yeah, he quotes um, him a lot in his Breshit He quotes him a lot. Yeah. He does. Um, as noting that there are two stories in Tanakh that begin with the word levado by himself and end with the, the root tzadi lamed ayin, which can be read either tzolea, limping, and, it, and because, the reason why tzolea means limping is because a tzela, tzadi lamed ayin, is either a rib or the side of two sides of something. Tsela HaMishkan, Tsela HaHar. I prefer to read Adam and Eve's story as taking woman from man's side, splitting man in two, then reading from the rib. And the rib is called Tsela because your rib cage is divided into two. But this story begins with Vayivater Yaakov Levado. He was left alone. And it ends with him being Tsolea, which of course has to remind you as Yuval Levine says, of the beginning of the story of Adam, who is split in two, and he is originally Levado, until a tsela, a half of himself, comes and meets up with him in order for him again to become more whole. So that intertextual allusion of Levado and Solea, or Levado and Sela, takes you back and is one of the intertextual clues or hints 
to the what, the fact that what's going on here literarily is Yaakov splitting in two and meeting up with himself in that courageous psychological encounter. I also love that. I think this is from your book. Where yes. Hagidna et Shimcha. That okay. Shai, you take it. It's yours. But okay. I love that point. So I'm going to have okay. to ask you to, to share it with us. So I'll tell you a quick story. I was in my the Beit Midrash of Midrash of Lindenbaum, where I've had the wonderful privilege of teaching the past 35 years. And about 25 years ago, a chavruta of two very bright young women came up to me in the Beit Midrash and said, what is the meaning of the wordplay between Hagida na Shemecha, which should be translated, pray tell me your name, and the sinew on the cusp of the thigh, which in Hebrew sounds exactly the same as Hagida na Shemecha, Gida na she, the, the part of the body that was injured in the wrestling between Jacob and the mysterious Ish, and the thing that until this very day were forbidden to eat that part of the filet mignon. You know, if I if I have really good acute, if I remember from years ago reading, was one of those women Lonnie Sachs? Absolutely, <laughs> Lonnie Goldstein Sachs, <laughs> who was on the podcast. I mean, uh, a few months ago, but and, I remember that because I remember and her showing Sarah up in the book. Sarah Wise Prager. Okay, uh, I don't the know. The two yet. of them were Chavruta. <laughs> and as I tell people, uh, it took me about fifteen years to come up with an answer to their question. <laughs> okay. But the uh, some of the best questions take you the longest time to percolate. Totally. Um, but ultimately, I understood that Gid Hanasheh is a symbolic part of the body. Um, Gid is, is resonated throughout the Yaakov stories leading up to the wrestling scene as Lahagid, uh, Hagid Na, Gid, Velohigid, Alblihigid. That is the element of Yaakov that is obviating. That is absconding. Is not that's, that's not telling. Yeah. Um, so the is to rectify that is, and therefore the gid, which is a sinew or uh, or uh, a nerve, um, is also to tell. Nashe um, comes from the same root as the name Minashe, which Joseph gives to his oldest son, in which he very strangely, in an oxymoron, says. I named my I named my first son Minashe because God caused me Nashani Elokim at Kolamalivet Betavi. God has caused me to forget my father's house, and the irony of that is when you repress something, that's the way to preserve it in your broken identity. Um, the only way to put something in the past is to deal with it directly, is to confront it. Um, and by putting it into the past or repressing it, um, Joseph calls his son, forget my father's house. Can you imagine? Uh, pass the peas, forget my father's house. Bring me my slippers, forget my father's house. Um, <laughs> of course, he doesn't really want to forget his father's house. Um, and, but nasheh means the forgotten or the repressed. The telling of the forgotten or the telling of the repressed is exactly the injury of the psychotherapeutic cathartic encounter. And that's why it's called the place of Gid HaNasheh. It's the place of the telling of the forgotten. You know, I wanted to ask you something sort of from the beginning of, of this journey that we've been going on about how you look at the relationship between Yaakov and Yitzchak, meaning 
when we end that scene, and essentially when Yaakov moves on because he has to run away, I'm sort of curious how, whether you want to sort of think about it psychologically or paradigmatically, how how you view that relationship. Do you look at it as having ended without any sort of hashlama that they're left and Yaakov just will forever be looking to fill until he manages to come to some sort of healthier space, but he's just forever looking to fill that acquired, earned for love? I think the relationship on the one hand is broken. Mm. It's broken because of miscommunication, like all of the uh, the relationships in, in Sefer Bereshit that suffer from lack of open communication. I believe that Yitzchak intended to give the bracha that Yaakov receives at the end before fleeing, he intended to give him that blessing all along. There's a key phrase called Birkat Avraham, the blessing of Abraham, that he gives not to Jacob when he's, descri- he's disguised as Esav, and not to Esav when he comes in later from the field, but only in the third blessing given to Jacob before he goes off to live with Laban for two decades. Um, and so the, the irony and the heartbreak and the tragedy, sort of the Greek tragedy in all of this, is that Yaakov would have gotten Birkat Avraham, but, uh, and he did get Birkat Avraham, but he didn't need the subterfuge to get there. Yitzchak was able to perceive in Yaakov that which who is, he who is worthy of carrying on the legacy of Avraham. But he maybe also had to see that he was capable of being Esav, of, uh, there's a wonderful perusha that, that I, at least in my memory, attribute to Yoel Ben-Nun, Rav Yoel Ben-Nun, who said, Hakol kol Yaakov ha-yadayim yaday Esav, the voice is the voice of Jacob, uh, but the hands are the hands of Esau because he put hair on his hands, is really Yitzchak's split, his misguided split of Yaakov. Uh, he thinks that the kol and the yadaim, representing the spirit and the action, um, you would give the spirit, run, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto the Lord that which is spiritual. Um, and he had to learn that, no, that's not the view. Yaakov has to combine both. He has to be a man capable of being a man of action. And so in that sense, maybe it achieved something the subterfuge itself achieved something positive between Isaac and Jacob. Um, but on the other hand, as I said a minute ago, it's broken. It's a broken relationship. And I see a little bit of a hint of that in another Freudian slip um, when the dream scene comes and he falls asleep alone at night going into exile at the beginning of Parshat Vayetze in next week's Parshat. Um, you have uh, God appearing to him and speaking and saying, Anochi Elohei Avraham Avicha Velohei Yitzchak, which is very odd. It should have said, Elohei Avraham Velohei Yitzchak Avicha. But Avicha is placed not on the Isaac character, but on the relationship to Abraham. And that to me is symbolic of in his dream, in his unconscious. Uh, there's a knock on that door from the, uh, from the subconscious to the conscious level it's in the form of a dream saying, you have damaged your relationship with Isaac in order to get the blessing of Abraham. So I appear to you as the God of Abraham, your father, 
even though he's the grandfather, and not as Elohei Yitzchak Avicha. You know, it's interesting because um, we're going to start winding down the conversation. I mentioned in a previous episode about sort of the inherent comparative danger of having two children, which of course I'm not making, I'm not criticizing people having two children, but there's something that when you have two, that there's a natural contrast that's created between them. And I think that there's that great, that magic of the third who comes and sort of mixes everything up and Mm -hmm. then, and shows parents that things aren't necessarily like that. But I think another big pitfall in parenting that the Brishit really surfaces is the danger of, typologizing our children, meaning if we look at a child as being the funny one, or in this case, the hairy one, or the hunter, or, you know, the one who has, we identify them, we identify them by their trademark. It's a really, on one hand, it could obviously be empowering for a child. It also can be somewhat difficult for them because they become associated. Oh, he he's the drummer, right? Or she's the artistic one. And while I speak as a parent who, uh, you know, I make just as many mistakes as the next one out there, but that's something that I try and be very careful about. Um, I don't know if I always balance it enough with the right kind of compliments, but to be careful, and I have four daughters, so the whole comparison thing is a whole nother tricky business, but to try to steer away from typologies and to really let And then let why don't we go one... ahead and do on Leila there? Right, of course. <laughs> And the best resolution for that is somewhat along the same lines that you're you're suggesting, um, that every child carries within himself or herself uh, the chacham, the rasha, the tam, and the yoshevo halim. Yeah. Uh, we are all of them. I think there's also a part of me that, and this is, I would say, definitely from a deep spiritual belief, that I also believe that when parents convey that, belief, whether they say it out loud or not, it gets through to their children. I mean, when you see, oh, that's my athletic child, or that's my, you know, artistic child, it's very good to recognize their talents. But I try also not just to not say it, but also in my heart to leave open the possibilities for all of them to be whatever they're going to want to be. They'll choose what talents they have and which ones they want to bring to the world and highlight on the outside. But I, I do try and keep those, also those internals, not only not to say it out loud, but to keep internally those spaces open and be like, oh, well, she seems to like that, but who knows where she'll be in 10 years from now. Maybe end what I have to say by telling you that I encourage that approach. But I want to say as well that children are not so fragile. And whatever mistakes we make as parents and grandparents. Good to hear. <laughs> um, you know, and that's one of the lessons here of yeah, going back to Yaakov and the injury that we call the injury that enables. Vayar kilo yacholo means he saw he couldn't overcome, but at the end it says, kisarita im Elohim vim anashim vatuchal, which I think is mistranslated as you have struggled with your, uh, with God and with man and have overcome. I don't think vatuchal there means, it doesn't say vatuchal lahem, it just says vatuchal. You become enabled. When you struggle, you become enabled. And we, uh, unfortunately, particularly in American culture, but it's, it's, it'll make its way over to Israel as well, there is this feeling that children need to be protected rather than challenged, um, that injuries don't enable, they dis- disable. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a certain amount of mistakes that we make that make our kids stronger. Sure. 
even <laughs> when the the uh, injuries are inflicted not by a mysterious ish, but by uh, people in our very own home who love us. Who love us unconditionally. Yes, and conditionally. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for this conversation. It was really uh, a pleasure. Uh, I think many of your listeners know that a literary study for me is like literally like walking into a playground. So this mm. was has been mm. an absolute pleasure. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thank you, Yosefa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.